afternoon i don't know what time it is for you but i hope you've been having a good day this is the team book club podcast chapter four of the tequila mockingbird i hope you have all been well so let's get into the book all right the remainder of my school days were no more auspicious than the first indeed they were an, an endless project that slowly evolved into a unit in which miles of construction paper and wax crayon were expended by the state of Alabama. In its well-meaning but fruitless efforts to teach me group dynamics, when what Jem called the Dewey Decimal System was a school-wide by the end of my first year, so I had no choice to compare it to other teaching techniques. I could only look around me. Atkins and my uncle, who went to school at home, knew everything, at least. What one didn't know, the other did. Furthermore, I couldn't help noticing that my father had served for years in the state legislature, elected each time without opposition. Innocent of adjustments, my teachers thought essential to the development of good citizenship. Jim educated on a half desk or half dune cap, dance cap basis. Wow. Just wow. This is just they. Basically, we would be learning in that type of system, which is much easier than the current system we're in, where if you go further than what your teachers teach you, you're not smart anymore. That's real dumb seemed to function effectively alone or in a group, but Jim was a poor example. No tutorial system devised by a man could have stopped him from getting it at books. As for me, I knew nothing except what I gathered from from Time magazine and reading everything I could lay my hands on at home. But as I inched sluggishly around the treadmill of Maycomb County school system, I could not help receiving the impression that I was being cheated out of something. Out of what I knew not, yet I do did not believe that twelve years of unrelieved boredom was exactly what the state had in mind for me. As the year passed, released from school, thirty minutes before Jim, who had stayed until three o'clock, I ran by the Radley place as fast as I could, not stopping until I reached safety of our front porch. One afternoon, as I raced by, something caught my eye and caught it in such a way that I took a deep breath and looked around and went back. Okay, no, this is just redneck behavior. Like, you're afraid of this house, you run by it, and then you want to go back. Okay? Two live oaks stood at the edge of the Radley lot. Their roots reached into the side road and made it bumpy. Something about one of the trees attracted my attention. Some tinfoil was sticking in a knot hole just above my eye level, winking at me in the afternoon sun. I stood on tiptoe, hastily looked around once more, reached into the hole and withdrew two pieces of chewing gum, minus the outer wrapper. 
My first impulse was to get it in my mouth as quickly as possible, but I remembered where I was. I ran home and went on our front porch. I examined my loot. The gum looked fresh. I sniffed it and it smelled all right. I licked it and waited for a while. When I did not die, I crammed it in my mouth. Wrigley Double Mint. Let's take another moment to realize how absolutely stupid mad this is. How do you go to into someone's yard that you are afraid of, that you call a monster of sorts? Take something that should not be put in your mouth. Go and lick it or have the impulse to at least to put it in your mouth and then Anyways, some people just aren't built all right. When Jem came home, he asked me how I got such a wad. I told him I found it. Don't eat things you find, Scout. This wasn't on the ground. It was in a tree. Jem growled. Well, it was, I said. It was sticking in that tree yonder, that one coming from school. Spit it out right now. I spat it out. The tang was fading anyway. I've been chewing it all afternoon, and I ain't dead yet. Not even sick. Well, she'll definitely be sick later, that's for sure. Jem stamped his foot. Don't you know you're not supposed to even touch trees over there? You'll get killed if you do. You touched the house once? That was different. You go gargle right now, you hear me? Ain't nothing. I'll take the taste out of your mouth. You don't tell me... (laughs) I'll tell Calpurnia on you. Rather than risk it, risk a tangle with Cal, I did as Jem told me. For some reason, my first year of school had wrought a great challenge in our relationship. Cal's tyranny and fairness and meddling in my business had faded to gentle grumbles of general disapproval. On my part, I went to much trouble sometimes not to provoke her. Summer was on the way. Jem and I awaited it with impatience. Summer was our best season. It was sleeping on the back screened porch in cots or trying to sleep in the treehouse. Summer was everything good to eat. It was a thousand colors in a parched landscape, and most of all, summer was dill. The authorities released us early the last day of school and Jem and I walked home together. Reckon old Dill, Dill will be back home tomorrow? I asked, I said. Probably day after, said Jim. Mississippi turns him loose a day later. Wow. As we came to the live oaks at their early place, I raised my finger to point a hundredth time to the knot hole where I found the chewing gum, trying to make Jem believe I had found it there, and found myself pointing at another piece of tinfoil. I see it, Scout, I see it. Jem looked around, reached up, and gingerly pocketed a tiny, shiny package. Okay, both of them are rednecks. Like, they're not very smart, that's for sure. We ran home, and on the front porch, we looked at a small box patchworked with bits of tinfoil collected from chewing gum wrappers. It was the kind of box wedding rings came in, purple velvet and in, with a minute catch. Jim flicked open 
the tiny cat. Inside were two scrubbed and polished pennies, one on top of the other. Jem examined them. Indian heads, he said, 19.6. And Scout, one of them's 1900. These are real old. 1900, 100, I echoed. Say, Hashimit, I'm thinking. Jem, you reckon that somebody's hiding place? Nah, don't any be anybody much but us pass by there, unless it's some grown persons. Grown folks don't have a hide have hiding places. You reckon we ought to keep them, Jem? I don't know what we could do, Scout. Who'd we give them back to? I know for a fact, don't anybody go by there. Cecile goes by the back street and all the way around by town to get home. Cecile Jacobs, who lives at the far end of our street next door to the post office, walked a total of one mile per school day to avoid their Adley place. And old Mrs. Henry Lafayette Dubois, Miss Dubois lived two doors up the street from us. Neighborhood opinion was unanimous that Miss Dubois was the meanest old woman who ever lived. Jim wouldn't go by a place without Atkiss beside him. Wimp. What you reckon we ought to do, Jim? Finders were keepers unless title was proven. Plucking an occasional camellia. Okay. Getting a squirt of hot milk from Miss Maudie Atkinson's cow on a summer day, helping ourselves summons scuppered nogs, was part of our ethical culture. But money was different. Tell you what, said Jim, we'll keep him till school starts, then go around and ask everybody if it's theirs. There's some bus childs, maybe. He was, he was too taken up by getting out of school day and forgot him. These are somebody's. I know that. I see that they've been slicked up. They've been saved. Yeah, but why should somebody want to put away chewing gum like that? You know it doesn't last. I don't know, Scout, but these are important to somebody. How's that, Jim? Well, Indian heads, well, they come from the Indians. They're real strong magic, and they make you have good luck. Not like fried chicken when you're not looking for it, but things like long life and good health and passing six week weeks tests. These are real valuable to somebody. I'm going to put them in my trunk. Before Jem went to his room, he looked for a long time at the Adley place. He seemed to be thinking again. Too late, two days later, Dill arrived in a blaze of glory. He had ridden the train by himself from Meriden to Maycomb Junction. A courtesy title, Macon Junction, was in Abbott County, where he had been met by Miss Rachel in Macon's one taxi. He had eaten dinner in the diner. He had seen two twins hitched together, get off the train in, in Bay St. Louis, and stuck to his story regardless of threats. He had discarded the abominable blue shorts that were buttoned to his shirts and wore real shorts, short pants with a belt. He was somewhat heavier and no taller and said he had seen his father. 
Dill's father was taller than ours. He had a black beard and was president of L&L, N Railroad. So the kid's a rich boy then. Because if your father is the owner of a railroad, you must be real rich. I helped the engineer for a while, said Dill, yawning. In a pig's ear, you did, Dill. Hush, said Jeff. What will, play, what, will, what will we play today? Tom and Sam and Dick said Dill. Let's go to the front yard. Dill wanted the Rover boys because there were three respectable parts. He was clearly tired of being our character man. I'm tired of those, I said. I was tired of playing Tom Rover, who suddenly lost his memory in the middle of a picture show and was out of script until the end when he was found in Alaska. Make us up one, Jems, I said. I'm tired of making him up. Our first days of freedom and we we were tired. I wonder what the summer would bring. We had strolled to the front yard where Dill stood looking down at the street, the dairy face of the Radley place. I smell death, he said. I do. I mean it, he said. When I told him to shut up, you mean when somebody's dying, you can smell it? No, I mean I can smell somebody and tell if they're gonna die. An old lady told me how. Broski knows witchcraft, that's all I'm calling. He knows witchcraft, like... I guess white people also have witchcraft. Dill leaned over and sniffed me. Jean Lewis Finch. You are going to die in three days. Dill, if you don't hush, I'll knock you bow-legged. I mean it now. You all hush, growled Jem. You act like you believe in hot steams. You act like you don't, I said. What's a hot steam? Asked Dill. Haven't you ever walked alone along some road at night and passed by a hot place? Jem asked Dill. A hot steam somebody who can, can't get to heaven. Just swallows around on lonesome roads. And if you walk through him, when you die, you'll be one too. And you'll go around at night sucking people's breath. Yeah, let's take a moment of silence. These guys' versions of going to hell are quite strange. How can you keep from passing through one? You can't, said Jim. Sometimes they stretch out all the way across the road. But if you have to go through one, you say, Angel Bright, life and death, get off the road, don't suck my breath. That keeps them from wrapping around you. Don't you believe a word he says, Dill? I said, Cow says. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I can't believe they sneak this into a, a book that's for schools. Cal says that's um, an N-words talk. So basically, um, African magic. Anyways, Jim scowled darkly at me, but said, Well, are we going to play anything or not? Let's roll in the tire, I suggested. Jim sighed, Do you know I'm too big? You can push. I ran to the backyard and pulled an old car tire from under the house. I slapped it up the front yard. I'm first, I said. Dill said he ought to be first. He just got here. 
Jim arbitrated, awarded me first push and with an extra time for Dill. And I folded myself inside the tire. Until it happened, I did not realize that Jem was offended by my contradicting him on hot steams, and that he was patiently awaiting an opportunity to reward me. He did by pushing the tire down the sidewalk with all the force in his body. Ground sky and houses melted into a mad pallet. My ears throbbed. I was suffocating. I could not put my hands out to stop. They were wedged between my chest and knees. I could only hope that Jen would outrun the tire and me, or that I would be stopped by a bump in the sidewalk. I heard him behind me chasing and shouting. The tire bumped on gravel, skittered across the road, crashed into a barrier, and popped me out like a cork into the pavement. Dizzy and nauseated, I lay on the cement and shook my head, pounding, pounded my ears to silence, and heard Jem's voice. Scout, get away from there. Come on. I raised my head and stared at the Atlee place, steps in front of me. I froze. Come on, Scout. Jim was screaming. Get up, can't you? I got to my feet, trembling as I thought. Get the tire, Jim hollered. Bring it with you. Ain't you got any sense at all? When I was able to navigate, I ran back to them as fast as my shaky knees could carry me. Why didn't you bring it, Jem yelled. Why don't you get it, I screamed. Jem was silent. Gone. It ain't far inside the gate. Why you even touched the house once, remember? Jem looked at me furiously. Could not decline. Ran down the sidewalk, treaded the water at the gate, then dashed in and retrieved the tire. See? There. Jem was scowling triumphantly. Nothing to it, I swear. Scout, sometimes you act so much like a girl, it's mortifying. I mean, she is a girl, I think. There was more to it than he knew, but they decided not to tell him. Kyle appeared in the front door and yelled, Lemonade time. You'll get out of in and out that hot sun for your fry, for your fry alive. Lemonade in the middle of the morning was a summertime ritual. Kyle set up a pitcher and three glasses on the porch, then went about her business. Being out of Jem's good graces didn't worry me especially. Lemonade would restore his good humor. Jem gulped down his second glassful and slapped his chest. I know what we're gonna play, he announced. Something new. Something different. What? asked Dill. Boo Radley. Oh no. You all are playing with fate, that's what you're doing. Jem's head at times was transparent. He had thought that up to make me understand he wasn't afraid of the of Radley's in any shape or form. To contrast his own fearless heroism with my cowardice. Boo Radley, how? asked Dill. Jim said, Scout, you can be Mrs. Radley. I declare if I will, I don't think. Smatter, said Dill. Still scared? He can get out at night when we're all asleep, I said. Jem hissed. Scout, how's he gonna know what we're doing? Besides, I don't think he's still there. He died years ago, and they stuffed him up the chimney. Dill said, Jem, you and me can play, and Scout can watch if she's scared. 
Okay, yeah, she is a girl. I was fairly sure Buradley was inside that house, but I couldn't prove it. And I and felt it because best to keep my mouth shut while I would be accused of believing in Hotstein's phenomena. I was immune to it in the daytime. Jim parceled out our roles. I was Mrs. Radley and all I had to do was come out and sweep the porch. Dill was old Mr. Radley. He walked up and down the sidewalk and coughed when Jim spoke to him. Jem naturally was bull. He went under the front steps and shrieked and howled from time to time. As the summer progressed, so did our game. We polished and perfected it, added dialogue and plot until we had manufactured a small play upon which we rang changes every day. Wow. These kids sometimes, they are quite interesting. Imagine just coming up with a play whilst you're just making fun of a kid or another kid. It's amazing. Dill was a villain's villain. He could get into any character's part assigned to him and appear tall if height was part of the delivery required. He was as good as his worst performance. His worst performance was gothic. I reluctantly played assorted ladies who entered the script. I never thought it as much fun as Tarzan, and I played that summer with more than vague anxiety, despite Jem's assurance that Boo Radley was dead and nothing would get me. With him and Cal there in the daytime, and Atkins home at night, Jem was a born hero. It was a melancholy little drama, woven from bits and scraps of gossip and neighborhood legend. Mrs. Radley had been beautiful until she married Mr. Radley and lost all her money. She also lost most of her teeth, her hair, and her right forefinger. Wow, her husband must have been real abusive then. Dale's contribution, Boo, bit it off one night and when he couldn't find any cats and squirrels to eat. Wow. These people really have some interesting legends about just a young kid. She sat in the living room and cried most of the time, while Boo slowly whittled away all the furniture in the house. The three of us were the boys who got into trouble. I was the probate judge for a change. Dill led Jem away and crammed him beneath the steps, poking him with the brush broom. Jem would appear as needed in the shapes of the sheriff, assorted townsfolk, and Miss Stephanie Crawford, who had more to say about the Radleys than anybody in Mako. When it was time to play Boo's big scene, Jem would sneak into the house, steal the scissors from the sewing machine drawer when Carol's back was turned, and then sit in the swing, cut up newspapers. Dill would walk by, cough at Jem, and Jem would fake a plunge into Dill's thigh. From where I, I stood, it looked real. When Mr. Nathan Radley passed us on his daily trip to town, we would stand still and silent until he was out of sight, then wonder what he would do to us if he suspected our our activities halted when any of the neighbors appeared, and once I saw Miss Maudie Atkinson 
staring across the street at us, her hedge clippers poised in midair. One day we were so busily playing chapter 25, book 2 of One of Man's Family, we did not see Atkis standing on the sidewalk looking at us, slapping a roll of the magazine against his knee. The sun said 12 noon. Wow. They, they already have a book too. These guys are, they really have some time on their hands. What are you all playing? He asked. Nothing, said Jim. Jim's evasion told me our game was secret, so I kept quiet. What are you doing with those scissors then? Why are you tearing up that newspaper? If it's today, I'll tan you. <laughs> nothing, nothing what, said Atkins. Nothing, sir. Give me those scissors, Atkins said. There are no things to play with. Does this by any chance have anything to do with their Adleys? No, sir, said Jim, reddening. I hope it doesn't, he said shortly, and went inside the house. Jim! Shut up! He's gone in the living room. He can hear us in there. Safely in the yard, Dilla asked Jim if he could play anymore. I don't know. Atkus didn't say we couldn't. Jim, I said. I think Atkus knows it anyway. No, he don't. If he did, he'd say he did. I was not so sure, but Jem told me I was being a girl. The girls always imagine things. That's why other people hated them so. And if I started behaving like one, I could just go off and find some to play with. Alright, you just keep it up then. I said, you'll find out. Atkins' arrival was the second reason I wanted to quit the game. The first reason happened the day I rolled into the Radley's front yard. Through all the head-shaking, quelling and of nausea, and gem-yelling, I had learned another sound, so no, I could not have heard it from the sidewalk. Someone inside the house was laughing. This just turned into a horror. Anyway guys, that's the end of chapter 4 of To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode and also my time to time um, just random notes because this book is throwing me off. I hope you guys are all well. Stay cool. Ciao.